Welcome to my podcast, Follow Your Bliss, with me, Nicola Fisher. I'll be talking to people who inspire me and asking them about the journeys they've taken navigating change and how this has led them to find fulfilment and purpose. If you're on a quest to create a meaningful life for yourself, I hope these conversations inspire you too. Dieter Randolph is a writer, coach, teacher, podcaster, and also a third generation minister. For a while, he walked away from his ministry to sell cars and work in IT. In this episode, Dieter and I talk about traveling the journey of life, what defines us, and of course, we mention the hero's journey. We discuss what happened when Dieter found the pastoral following him in his secular jobs and how he realised what was calling to him. I really enjoyed this conversation because we explored how we might all describe church or community as something very different and how essentially we're all travelling our own journeys but arriving at the same destination. We also talked about how we can frame the things we do as what we are called to do each day and how that can change our perspective. I hope today's episode gives you much to ponder as it did for me. I was really interested in the book that you've got out at the moment, which has got a really good title, Meaning Fulfilled. And it's about finding what matters and changing your life. Mm. Now, this is a really... um, it's a topic that I'm really interested in and it's something that's quite close to my heart as well. So I'd love to hear more about the book and how it came about and why did you choose this as a topic? Uh, Absolutely. Well, basically what happened for me is I am a third generation minister and there's been uh, wonderful benefits to that kind of a background and incredible uh, drawbacks to that kind of a background as well. It's been challenging, in fact, so much so that there was a time when I was a a very young man that I walked away from the whole thing and I just went and got a quote unquote regular job. I sold used cars and I did computer things and I did anything I could to feed my family, but I just wanted to be a million miles away from it. And maybe we can talk more about the pivotal moment for me, but right now the thing that, that I wanted to talk about was that as a minister, and obviously I've come back to that life, although I do it in a very different way, now than what my parents or grandparents or anyone else does. I have been a part of literally hundreds of funerals. And obviously it's not something I'm, I'm happy about, but I am honored to be a part of that rite of passage mm-hmm. and all of that. But I don't know if you've, you've been to a lot of them, but, but everyone I've been to, everyone turns into a philosopher and they have their theories about what happens and everyone wants to talk about things. And it's a wonderful moment because our hearts are a little bit closer to the surface. People say all kinds of things, but I've never heard anyone say, and once again, hundreds of opportunities for someone to say this, never heard anyone say, yeah, that was a wonderful service. It was nice to the sharing and all of that sort of thing. But I wanted to know more about their credit score and their shoe size and how tall they were. No one ever wants to know about the data. And that's interesting to me because most people spend most of their time 
chasing the data. If I could only get a few more, a little bit more money, if I could only lose a few more pounds, if I could only get a few more likes on Instagram or you name it. And the numbers and the data are everywhere and they're absolutely meaningless, which is why I think a lot of people spend a lot of time unhappy and frustrated and everything else. And so I began thinking about, well, what is meaningful? What are those moments when you're really in the zone, when you feel creative, when you feel connected to something bigger than yourself, when you're working on something and you forget to eat, when you don't mind standing out in the rain because the person you love is in that house, you know, or whatever it happens to be. What are those moments and, and where does that kind of a meaning come from? And so the book is the result of me thinking and talking and working on the idea of let's figure out what actually matters, what we can, we can measure our lives by instead of the things that just make us more and more unhappy. And that title, meaning full filled, speaks to the idea that when you experience something bigger than yourself and you open yourself, you let it fill you. That's the second part. That feeling of fullness prompts you to want to go share it with the rest of the world. When you're filled, it runs out into your actions and into your world and into your relationships. And that's how you know something really meaningful happened is you share it with somebody. I think it's very interesting what you say about funerals and how the data doesn't matter. And I hadn't thought about it like that before, but it's very true. You know, we do focus so much on all these data points and not what makes us us. And I think um, I read something else uh, whilst I was having a look at some of the things that I found online and you know, you talk a lot about finding your passion and starting where you are um, mm -hmm. and also um, finding a life that you love um, and something that feeds you. How how do you how have you found that for yourself? What was that journey like for you? Well, I think that it's something that we all learn a little bit the easy way and a lot the hard way. And I think once, you know, at the beginning of a conversation like this, I want to really stress that there is nothing wrong with taking your lumps. There is nothing wrong with going down some dead ends and, and doing it the quote unquote wrong way. I, I think that there's this cultural idea that you're never supposed to have a dent in your armor. You're never supposed to have a scuff on the fender of life. You're never supposed to mess up. But the truth is every hero you ever had has their scars, has their heartache, has that wonderful moment when they don't get what they want. I mean, gosh, uh, Luke Skywalker would have liked to hang out with his aunt and uncle or would have liked Obi-Wan Kenobi to be around a little bit longer. Harry Potter would have liked to have met his parents. Every hero that you have, when you think about the quote unquote hero's journey that Joseph Campbell architect, yeah, yeah. they all have that moment where whatever it was gets, gets taken away, whether they've outgrown it or whether it just goes. And there's something beautiful about that. Mm -hmm. And I want everyone listening to know that it's okay. In fact, kind of wonderful to have that taken away because we all get to that moment. Once again, it can be a wonderful, uh, joyous moment or it can be incredibly heartbreaking. But one way or another, we get to that moment where we go, that thing, whether it's a job, a relationship, something that we own, it, it's gone now. And yet, I'm still here. I thought that it defined me and gave me my identity, but it's gone and I'm here. So I guess not. And maybe the universe just needed a more honest, a more pure version of me. And you start to learn something about yourself. Mm -hmm. So for me, I've had a lot of little 
moments where I realized, oh, well, that's not me. Those expectations from my parents or that amount of money or that relationship, I guess that's not me because it's gone and I'm here once again. For me, the big deal was, uh, as, I, as I alluded to a few moments ago, I grew up sort of being groomed to be a very typical kind of minister. And that was the idea. And, uh, you know, if both your parents and your mom's parents are plumbers, you're probably going to know how to use a monkey wrench. It's just one of those things. And there's pros and cons to any kind of family business. And uh, so I was suiting myself to it. I went to seminary. I went to to get my degree in theology and I did all of the things that you do. And I was doing okay at it. And I really do and did feel a profound sense of calling. I knew that there was this thing that I wanted to do, but I also knew that the means by which I was supposed to do it, the things I'd been trained for. And this is how, you know, church means Sunday morning, one hour a week and a guy, and it's almost always a white male stands in front of a group of people and talks for a while. And then we go have lunch. That's church, you know, and it just didn't speak to me. And so I felt very unhappy because I have this calling, but it doesn't match the, the implementation. And it must be my fault. You know, there's something wrong with me. And I know not, not a lot of people listening are in the ministry, but I think everyone has their version of that moment where there's the inside doesn't match the outside. And so my answer was to just leave. Like I said, I just got a secular job and in fact, a series of secular jobs. And I did quite well in the, in the business world. I discovered I had an aptitude for computers. I ended up actually working for Google for a little while and I made some money and all of that. But at no point in that, was I happy? In one case, I was unhappy because I had the calling, but it didn't match the implementation. And in that, the secular world, the computer stuff, I was unhappy because I didn't have either one. And uh, two interesting things happened right away. I discovered that no matter what I was doing, people would come find me. So we'd be in a meeting and the meeting would end and someone in the meeting would say, hey, it's just you and me. I uh, just wanted to talk real quick after everybody goes. And I would think it would be about a status report or some kind of, you know, corporate something. And they would say, I'm going through a divorce. And I wondered what you thought about this and that and the other or you name it. But personal stuff, life stuff, spiritual stuff. And at no point was I trying to make a convert. I just can't believe that God cares about brand recognition. But it was about, can I convert you to the idea that there's something bigger inside of you than anything going on outside of you? You know, that's all I care about. That's all I ever did care about. But so people would find me everywhere I went, and I just couldn't get away from it. So that happened. But the other thing that happened is my wife said, you know, this is terrible. <laughs> this life is, you're not happy. You know, we got a little bit of money. Things are going okay in that area, but who cares? You're not happy. Clearly something needs to change. And so we started to try to figure out together, and she really is my partner in everything. We started to figure out together, well, what would it be like if you actually wanted to go to church? You know, maybe it doesn't mean Sunday morning for an hour with a white guy and, for, you know, all that stuff. What if it means something different? And so we have been working on the idea that the word church, as you probably know, uh, literally means called out community. So in other words, it's a community of people who are called by something bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. But the other meaning of the word is that we call each other out. In other words, we hold each other accountable. Church should not be, in my opinion, a place where everybody just sits around and validates each other and agrees to hate the same group of outsiders and all of that stuff. Church mm -hmm. ought to be a place where people challenge one another, 
They inspire each other with courage and truth, and they face what's going on in real life. So we've been trying to do that in all kinds of crazy ways. I mean, the COVID quarantine has added some uh, extra layers of, yeah, of <laughs> it's been interesting, Yeah, but uh, we keep trying. But at the end of the day, the goal that I have with this book and with everything I do is can these ideas and these feelings that you have that you can almost not express, they're too big and too wonderful. Can you bring them to bear on real life instead of within some kind of cloistered situation? Mm. And that's the driving principle. Mm. Yeah. Do you know, I've had so many conversations whilst I've been recording these podcasts and we've, as I said to you before we started, we've almost talked about the same thing in every podcast, but from a different perspective. I love and it. I, I mean, I'm really into the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell. That's come up a number of times. You talked about calling and aligning the inner with the outer. And, you know, that's something that I'm really into as well. And that's part of what I sort of talk about, but that comes up all the time. I just think it's it's so fascinating for me that, you know, people are coming at it. One guy was talking about creativity. Another lady was talking about art. But it's almost bringing us to the same point. But mm. you can, there's all these different avenues that you can go down. So you're kind of coming from a more spiritual um, and others are more secular. Mm -hmm. I just find it really fascinating that we're, we're kind of all meeting in the middle. I love that. I love that. Um, one of the the images that that I found in there's a book called Lessons in Truth. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, near the end of the book, the author says, "Imagine a wagon wheel. You know, you have the wooden wheel with the hub and the spokes going out and all that." She says, "Basically, you're one of those spokes, and everyone else is one as well. And you can spend all of your time uh, feeling angry and hurt by the distance between you and the other spokes." But the truth is, the closer you get to the center, the less the distance between the spokes. Yeah. And so at the end of the day, what she's saying is, who cares what the differences are? We're all heading in the same place. Doesn't matter what you call it. We're all working mm -hmm. on the same thing. I don't believe that all religions say the same thing. I mean, think about it. There are some religions that that are fighting you know, against the yeah. other ones. There are some that yeah. think that they're uh, dreadfully wrong in all kinds of terrible ways. I don't say that all religions say the same thing, but I am going to say that all of them are working on the same thing. And I want to expand that out to say it's not even a, a religious thing. It's not even a spiritual thing. I've had people say to me when they they hear that I'm I'm a religious person or spiritual person or whatever you want to call it. I've had people say, "Well, I don't believe in a, a god, uh, some guy up in the sky with a beard." And I say, "Well, I don't either. That leaves too much out. I think you're thinking of Santa Claus, someone who who sees what you're doing at night and what I, I don't believe in some giant stalker in the sky either. That's not my thing." Um, but people will say, "Well, I don't believe in anything that you can't prove with an equation." Okay, fine, but do you love your kids? Are you inspired by art when your favorite song comes on the radio? Do you feel moved to dance? Do you do you feel moved to cry when something is just so true? That's what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. The fact that you like your favorite song. It's not a Bible thing. It's not a spiritual thing at all, but just the fact that you like your favorite song. If you were a robot, that would be a, a an error. It would be a glitch. Mm -hmm but it's the most important part of you. Mm. That's what's meaningful. What are the things that you can't 
prove with an equation. You know, when you fall in love with somebody and you tell all your friends and they say, why are you in love with them? You can't explain it. It just is. And so I think that that being a happy person, a fulfilled person or whatever, doesn't mean that you go to the same church as me. It means that you are in touch with more and more of those things that just are, that are beyond the thing. The things that you know in the same way that you know when you're in love, the same way that you know that you're alive. I can't prove to you that you're alive. You just are. Mm. Those are the things that matter way more than your credit score, your weight or something silly like that. So do you think that fulfillment is important to the world? Do you think, I, I have this theory that if people, I call it essence, so mm -hmm. I call it aligning with your essence. And I have this theory that if people were more aligned with their essence, they would be happier and the world would be a happier place. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that when you when you look at all of the terrible things, I mean, from wars to, you know, corporations looking the other way when terrible things are happening to the environment, to human rights violations, you name it so often. It's not because there are bad people. I don't believe in bad people, but I do think that it's a matter of people looking the other way because they think they've got to make a certain amount of money because they're trying to get away with something, because they're living by the data in one way or another, instead of listening to their own hearts, you know when something's not the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that that listening is something we have to cultivate. I think it's like uh, building any other kind of muscle. I think that sometimes it atrophies a little bit, but but that that voice, that guidance is always there. You know when you're doing something you ought not do. Mm. And if, if it's just a matter of learning how to listen to your heart and we teach people that, you know what, what's good is not something that has anything to do with how much money you have. Because we all know people who are absolutely miserable who have a lot of money. You can be miserable on a private jet. You can be wrong in an expensive suit. You know, I don't know uh, if they have these shows in the UK, but in America, there's a, there's a series, there's a whole franchise of television shows called The Real Housewives of, and it's some city. So it'll be like The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills or Atlanta or New York. And they're all people who have incredible amounts of money. And they are all people who are just dedicated to making everybody miserable. It's like a soap opera. It's one of yeah. those kind of shows. And the I'm not a fan, obviously, but but the thing that those shows prove is you can have a lot of money and still be a terrible person. Mm. And so, unhappy. yeah, and incredibly unhappy and not just mm. unhappy, but hoping to make other people unhappy, too. Mm. And yet we also know each and every one of us know people who don't have a lot of money, who have figured out how to be in love, who have figured out how to find happiness, who have figured out some some level of fulfillment. And so if you know, quote unquote, poor people who have happiness and you know, quote unquote, rich people who don't, then we need to decouple the idea that success or happiness has anything to do with finance. Mm. And if you can start finding a different way to measure your happiness, your success, and if oh, the world that we make together is based on that standard, the interesting things happen. Mm. We start to focus on the things in front of us. One of the things I say in the book is that initially the idea of, of a professional was a very different idea. I mean, if you were the village blacksmith a long time ago, you weren't gunning for a promotion. 
you're an apprentice or you're a blacksmith and that's about yeah. it. The way that you become a success as a blacksmith is by being really good at it. And hopefully people will, will use your services. And everything was like that. The word professional comes from the root profess. In other words, I've got something to say. A professional was someone who was so in love, for lack of a better word, with what they were doing that they came through in their craftsmanship. You know, they were good at it because they were good at it. The goal was not advancement. It was mastery, right? It's only a very recent phenomenon that a professional nowadays is someone who doesn't do the job anymore. I'm so good at it that I don't have to do it. I get somebody else to do it and I get to tell them what to do. And it's those layers of abstraction that have become a value in our culture that are exactly the problem. So I would argue if you want to be happy, find ways to remove some layers of abstraction and really engage with whatever you're doing. If you're really uh, interested in making chocolate chip cookies, maybe don't use the microwave. You know, maybe don't <laughs> use the mix, you know, figure it out. Yeah. And maybe they won't be good at the beginning, but you'll be doing something authentic. Mm. It doesn't matter what it is. There's something beautiful about authenticity, about removing layers of abstraction. That ought to be the definition of prosperity. How few layers of abstraction can you get away with? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Now, you mentioned, I think I said earlier, about the divine spark and finding what is true for you. Mm -hmm. I've been talking, as I said, about creativity quite a lot. And I think when you're doing something creative, you can tap into this divine spark inside of you. And I suppose it's, you could almost compare it to a religious experience, you know, when you're in that flow and, um, you, you know, you're very aligned. Yes. What, what did you mean when you were mentioning divine spark? Well, that's precisely it. Once again, I, I'm not talking about the idea that there's a big guy in the sky who made you with power tools in his garage. You know, I don't, <laughs> but I think that, that we each partake in the never ending process of creation on a biological material level. We're always changing and evolving and developing on a cellular level, on a psychological level, on a spiritual level. The goal is to keep moving. And I, I think that, that part of it is, to, has to do with the idea that Let's get done with the concept that stability is somehow good. Let's get in touch with the idea that flow is even better, that being able to be nimble and to move forward. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about the divine spark, I talk about those moments when things just make sense. Not logic, but sense. Mm -hmm. You feel them, you know? And I think everyone has a version of that. Once again, when your favorite song comes on, that's the great example. When, when your favorite meal is being served and you smell that and something connects you, it's sensory when you're in love. When you're working on something, and I mean, think of the, the success stories of someone inventing a, the personal computer in their garage or, or working on art or just trying to do something important, you know, up in the attic, working on the great novel or whatever it is. The idea that, that I don't care what time it is. And you know what? I don't even care if anybody else likes this. This has to happen. That's the spark. Mm -hmm. It is without context. That's what makes it divine. It is unitive. It's not me and the, the beholder. It's not this and the, the thing that's going to receive it. It just is. That's what makes it divine. I think we can equate divinity with unity, with a sense of oneness, right? Mm -hmm. No matter what your, your particular uh, uh, details of your religious or spiritual persuasion are, let's just agree on that, that the idea of, of something that's bigger has to do with it. It just is. It's mm -hmm. uncut, you know? And so 
you have a taste of that when you're doing something and you don't care what anybody else thinks about it. It just has to happen. Mm -hmm. That's that oneness. And it, you're not doing it in some kind of a mean way because once again, that introduces duality. You're just doing it because it must be done. Yeah. Um, as a minister, do you have to be good at storytelling? I don't think every minister does. Uh, there are some that, that, that just don't. There are some ministers I've seen that where it's very much like a, a, a university lecture or something like that. And there are people who are very receptive to that. I like a story. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a fan of a story. <laughs> I think there's something beautiful about that. And you know, yeah. when you think about it, stories are really important. And actually it's interesting you brought that up. There's a, there's a, a pretty good part of the book that's devoted to telling your story okay. because, well, I, I think that it's really important. Once again, if it's not about the facts and figures, well then what is the vessel that contains you, you know, if you don't want people at your funeral to talk about your height and weight and shoe size, what do you want them to talk about? Mm -hmm. And what it is, is I'd like them to tell the stories of how I touch their lives and how they touch mine. The story of that. When you think about a, a culture, when it's exiled, if you look at the history of humanity, when so, a people loses its home, the thing that they take with them when they lose everything else material is their story. The first thing that they create is a story. If you're going to teach a child to tie their shoes, you can tell them about the tensile strength of laces. You can draw a diagram and a PowerPoint presentation. But what you're probably going to do is tell them that the rabbit goes around the tree and back into its hole again. It's a little story. And it works because it's a story. If you're going to ask someone to marry you, you're probably going to tell them a story of your love. You're not going to cite biological compatibility, right? <laughs> you're going to talk your way out of a traffic ticket. Well, officer, it's because I was, and it's a story. That is the thing that makes us happen. I want people to think of themselves not as material beings, but rather as mythological beings. I am contained by my narrative. In, in American culture, we, have a, we tell a story about our, uh, the first president of the United States, George Washington. And the, the story we tell is that when he was a little boy, he cut down a cherry tree, he chopped it down. And his, uh, his father said, why'd you do that? You're not supposed to do that. And George Washington, little George said, I cannot tell a lie. It was me. I, I did that. And the idea is that even though he was going to be punished, he had to tell the truth. Now, the truth is this story probably didn't happen. Who cares if it happened? But the narrative is that it is truer than the facts. The word myth doesn't mean a lie. It means that it's truer than true. The truth is not contained in facts. It's contained in the story. Americans tell that story of little George Washington because we think it says something about his character and by extension, the character of Americans or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are all kinds of stories like that. It's not about the facts. It's about the truth. In the same way, you are truer than true. You are more than the facts. And you think about it, the facts change all the time. It mm -hmm. used to be a fact in other words, an agreed upon thing that the males were somehow superior to females, but we got smarter and we realized that that's not the way it works. It used to be a fact that you could judge people by their color, but we know better than that. It used to be a fact that the world was flat. It used to be a fact that you were two feet tall, but you grew. It used to be a fact that you lived in one place, but you've moved. Mm -hmm. The facts change all the time. The truth never does. And if you feel upset by life, and it's easy to feel that way, find ways to ground yourself in what doesn't change, and you might start to feel better. Mm. But that's the story, not the data. Yeah.
So when when you're at your church and, you know, I presume you do a service on a Sunday normally if it's not, you know, the virus, <laughs> um, do you ever use the, the framework of the hero's journey to tell the story? I do. I do. I, I, I talk about it a lot because I, I want people to understand that that while we have, you know, it's a Christian church, so obviously we talk, you know, Jesus has a special role in all of that, but the truth is there are parts of his story that are that are things that you can identify with i mean the humble beginnings that you think about jesus in the manger and the the that chris that first christmas story that's an archetype that's within the hero's journey mm. it, it's once again it's harry potter under the stairs with not without knowing his parents it's luke skywalker on the farm it's it's a million stories that start that way and that's an important beginning because it's important for everyone listening to understand that you may start in, in, in a rough circumstance. You may start where you don't know what you're going to do next, where no one understands. But you have something in common with the hero of that story, and you see what they do, and that means that you can do it as well. I think that that's beautiful. And One of the things that's really important to us as far as that hero's journey is, as you know, it's not a straight line. It's a circle. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, Joseph yeah. Campbell says that last step is return with the elixir, right? The idea that you come back to your village, to your tribe with the cure, with the healing. And what we say at our church is it's great if you have some kind of spiritual revelation. It's great if you feel some kind of connection with God. But what are you doing about it? How are you helping somebody else? That's the thing. Our theology is very simple. We believe three things. God is good. Therefore, you are good. Go do good. It's those three things. And we can talk about details and all that, but really at the end of the day, they just don't matter much. Mm -hmm. If you believe that the essential nature of the universe is good, call it God or not, doesn't matter to me. If you believe that as a product of that universe, that you have goodness inside of you and you don't know everything and you mess up and you make mistakes and you learn things the hard way. But if you know that you are inherently good, you can learn the lesson. But you don't really learn it until you do something about it and help somebody else. And so as a result, in our church, we are always engaged in social action projects where we build houses for, for the homeless and we, we do soup kitchens. And we we every month, well, before this, every month we would have an activity where we did something out in the world. And we believe in the idea that that the truth belongs to everybody. So one of the things that we do as part of our Sunday services is there's a, uh, while I'm talking though, there's a screen and there'll be a phone number up on the screen and people uh, watching online as well as people in the room can text their questions. And after I do uh, the service, after I do the lesson part of the service, I answer the questions and I have no idea what people are going to say. And it's really, really fun to get to actually uh, not just lecture, but rather in interact and engage. But I think that if you believe something is really true, it should be able to stand up to the scrutiny of questions. So is that how you're doing your services now? You, you're doing them online? And we are doing them online, yes. So how's uh, that going? Well, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest with you. It's it's really strange. I mean, we do it from my living room. And uh, so I... It it's it's hard to not feel like it's some kind of a, a a terrorist capture video. You know, it's it's one of those things where it feels very odd. But uh, I do my best to do the service. But I have to say, as a speaker, I really feed on the reactions of people in the room, mm -hmm. and I kind of need to know: did that point land? Do they get it? And I need to move on. You know, I don't write a script 
of my lessons. I use, I make what's called a mind map. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I use a mind map. So I don't have a, I, I don't know what, I mean, I know what I'm going to say in broad terms, but I don't know the details. And so being able to see the people in the room lets me know, okay, we got this. We can move on to the other thing, or I need to go back to that because clearly there's some, but I don't have that. I can't see anybody. It's just me talking to a, a couple of cameras in my living room, mm -hmm. but it's, it's wonderful thing because what we've decided to do is we used to do it live, but we decided that we pre-record the services and we put them on YouTube. And while they're live streaming, I don't know if in YouTube, there's a little chat window along the side yeah. of the screen. Yeah. And, and my wife and I both have our computers there and people are asking questions and making comments during my talk and I'm answering the questions. So, it's as close as we can get to uh, interactivity without everybody being in the room. It's not the same. I mm -hmm. think that there's always going to be a need for this. And I think one of the wonderful things, if you can say that about the, the coronavirus thing, is that we have really learned how communal, how tribal mm -hmm. we really are. I, I think in the days of personalized Facebook news feeds and everybody interacting on the tiny screen right in front of their face, I think we think that everything's supposed to be tailored to the individual, that it's a personal experience. And that's only part of it. There's a reason why it hurts so much to not be able to go to the shopping mall. There's a reason why, you know, most people have a pretty nice uh, video system in their homes. They have surround sound and home theater and all that. And yet when the new Star Wars movie comes out, I'm in the theater even though popcorn costs a million dollars and there's somebody on their cell phone and they're distracting and you got to wait in line. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's not a great experience, but you do it because it is a great experience for different reasons. Yeah. The CD player in your car has got better sound, but going to a live show to hear that music is magical. We require tribe. Joseph Campbell, once again, we're going to quote him a lot today. He says oh, that, that, oh, me too, huge fan. He <laughs> says that humans are born 20 years too soon. Mm -hmm. You know, he says that other animals are right out of the gate, have instincts that help them be functional in very short order. But us human beings, we require the presence of other people. We're profoundly vulnerable for like 20 years. Mm -hmm. And that is part of our, it's not a, a curse. It's a real blessing. It's part of our makeup. We require the presence of other people in a way that no other animal does, not really. And we ought to lean into that. And instead of thinking about, well, what is me and my needs and my selfishness and my personalized, whatever it is, what if we really did try to love our neighbors? What if we really did try to put the common good First, we have people in this country, I hope you don't have it in the UK, we have people in this country who are just will not wear their surgical mask in public. They just won't do it. And it's so embarrassing. It, it's, come on, it's the, it literally the least thing you can do. It's not difficult. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, people think it's interfering with their freedoms or something like that. But the truth is, it's, it ought to be a moment to embrace the idea that there's something bigger than yourself. And we feel that on the inside, it's a spiritual thing, but we express it on the outside where it's a tribal thing. We ought to honor that idea of tribe because it'll make us happier people. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How an event like this shows you so many different elements and, you know, things that you took for granted, you kind mm. of think, about a lot more and you you recognize that I think the importance of community and just even you know the local community but also the more global community and yes 
how we're all in this together. And you said earlier, you mentioned oneness. And I think, you know, one of the side effects or the outcomes of this whole virus situation has been that people perhaps see themselves more as part of a whole rather yeah. than something separate and fragmented. I completely agree. And I think that the, the, the people, there are people who are upset by that revelation. You know, they want to be some kind of rugged individual, but I think most of us are sort of learning that, Oh, isn't it going to be wonderful when we can just go to a restaurant? <laughs> yeah. Isn't it going to be wonderful when we could go to the movies, um, go to, go to a, a, an amusement park? Isn't it going to be wonderful when you can actually see that someone else you don't know is responding to the same thing and the great rush of applause comes in in the show or the movie and we're all part of that. And isn't that great? And don't we need that? You know, and along the way, I think that we're learning to find new ways to reach out to one another, to check in on our loved ones when we can't be there physically. And that's good. I think that the the internet has not been used very well. I mean, imagine if Leonardo da Vinci or Ben Franklin or, or some important inventor were to come in and we say, look, we have this global network of information and in my, this little box in my pocket, I can see the temperature in China and I can summon up the, the library of Alexandria and everything else, but mostly I take pictures of my dinner. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But now we're learning that this this device has incredible shortcomings and i think that mm -hmm. things like facebook are very easy to abuse and and do terrible things and desensitize yourself to the actual humanity of other people and all of that but we are learning also that there are tools to actually reach out and care for someone when you can't be there physically and there's real beauty in that right now you and i are talking across an ocean yeah that's pretty neat um, you know um, it's, it's a beautiful thing yeah, I mean, I love technology. I'm a bit of a geek. Um, <laughs> and yeah, when you think, you know, I'm here not far from Manchester, which is in the northwest of the UK. Are you in Florida? I am. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many miles it is, 4,000 miles, something like that, maybe. Um, yeah, I just think it's quite remarkable that we can have these conversations. And yeah, I think technology is pretty amazing. And you know, I know from my own experiences, you know, having Zoom and um, Google Meet and different stuff like that, it's meant that I've still been able to talk to a lot of people. And I know other people have as well. And people have used Zoom very creatively. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing um, is what you do at the church, is that just for your community or is it open? Is it has it got a wider audience? It does. Uh, you know, as you might imagine, primarily there are people in the community who used to go be there in the building, but we have people who watch from all over the world, actually. Yeah. And and the way that it works is our, we put out our, our episode, for lack of a better word, um, <laughs> on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern time here in the U.S., but it's on YouTube. So people watch during the week or it's also the audio is on a podcast. And so we have people from all over the place and uh, Google being what they are can tell me who's watching from where more or less. And like I said, we have people in every continent just all over the place. And it really is a wonderful thing to be able to, to see that and to share. And, and the, you know, I only participate in the chat when it's streaming live. So most yeah. of the people who are talking there are reasonably local, but mm -hmm. I get emails and uh, uh, social media messages from all over the place all week long. 
And uh, I also have, there's a, a, a little thing I do. I have my own YouTube channel, uh, ask Dieter. So you go to askdieter.com and people send in a question. It, it could be anything. And I'll just answer the question in like five or six minute uh, yeah, video. Those, yeah. And I love those because they're questions that I wouldn't necessarily answer in church. It just didn't fit in the context of church. Mm. But, uh, it, and those questions just come from all over the world as well. And it's just a wonderful thing to, to get to just turn on the phone real quick, record five minutes, and it, it can be kind of rough around the edges and all of that. And it's just, it's wonderful thing that someone in Africa or India or the UK or France or here in America will want to know something. And frankly, a lot of the questions are the same, no matter where people are, which is wonderful. Yeah. So just going back to your book, um, what was your process for writing it? I know it's not the only one you've written. Um, right. You've got branching in, uh, so far so good, um, past okay in seven days. Um, so you've got you've got four books. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, so do you have a writing process when you're writing a book? Well, what I what I did with this one, and it's probably what I will continue to do because I've tried different different things. Um, what I did with this one was I, I spent months and months just getting the ideas together, trying to figure out, okay, this basic idea that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, about, okay, well, what is meaningful and how do you feel that? How do you find that? And then trying to break that down into topics that would lend themselves to, to chapters and just pulling material together. So it was a lot of uh, me with a notebook in my pocket, just wherever I happen to be, oh, this, this. And then I would spend time and I would dedicate time every day to do that. <clears throat> but then once I had a reasonable sense of, okay, here are the ideas and here are the chapters, I put together a series of Sunday lessons. And the reason I did that was it helped me see if this just made sense to me or if it made sense to other people. I was mm -hmm. able to get some reactions and immediately make some changes to that. Yeah, good. And then those mind maps from those lessons with my annotations became outlines that became the chapters. And then from there, it was just a matter of every day. And I really believe that you have to write every day, even if it's five minutes. You have to do it every day because it, it's it's a muscle and it can atrophy. And uh, I won't claim to be a great writer, but I do love writing. And so it's a little bit easier to get to do that every day. But I would on I have a little to do list on my phone and there's some items that pop up every single day and write something it was one of those things that would come up every day. And so I would spend time doing that. And uh, I have a little timer that you write for an hour and you don't do anything else. And then it turns the you can't even get on the Internet while you're writing that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so I would do that every day. And finally, after after another few months, I had a rough draft of the book. And then I went through it and edited and made sure it made sense and, you know, checked for grammatical, you know, that sort of thing. And then I, I uh, gave it to my wife, who's a lot smarter than I am and let her read it. And, uh, and she made all kinds of notes and worked through it with me and just edited. This ought to go here. This doesn't make sense here. What about this? And you said this, but you didn't write this. How come this is good? You know, that sort of thing. And then based on her changes, I made another draft. And then the, that, process. We went through that a few times until it really felt good. And then I, uh, I had my laptop connected to the television in the living room. And so I had the words up really big and she and I read them together because I really believe that if you read something that you've written out loud, mm. you'll be aware of, you know, something might look like it makes sense, but if you hear yourself say it, 
There's a little bit of Noam Chomsky where he says uh, grammar is kind of inherent, where you can tell, even if you don't know all of the rules of grammar, you can tell that something's not quite right. And so you read it out loud. And so we did that and I would make changes live. We did that a few times. And then finally it was a book and then submitted it to the publisher and all that good stuff. So it takes a long time. And I think different people have different processes, but the key to it for me is get your ideas together, try it out and then write every day until you really are proud of it. I like the way you've kind of done your market research by using your congregation <laughs> to trace out. Not everybody can do that, but I suppose there are different contexts, but that's a great idea. I tend to, if I've written something, say I've written an article for, you know, I've written a few for online publications or something. Mm -hmm. I read the right to my husband and as I'm reading it out, I can hear things and say, oh, just hang on, let me just change that bit because... I said the same word twice, or it doesn't sound quite right. So yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of power in reading out loud. Um, who inspires you? Oh my goodness! Well, I think that that on a personal level, it really is my family. I my, my wife and I met when we were very young, and uh, we just celebrated our 26th year of marriage. And okay. uh, so it's uh, you know we've been we really have grown up together. And uh, it's, she is my partner and my inspiration, but we have two children who are both grown now as well. And we're, uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see them just starting to figure out their life. My daughter is getting ready to buy a house, for example, and things like that. And just watching them get to do those things. And we made a deal with our kids when they were very young. We said, uh, you don't ever have to worry about getting good grades. You don't ever have to worry about making the sports team or anything like that. Your job is to find what speak to your heart and to give yourself to that. And as long as you're doing that, we will support you. I will pay your bills for the rest of your life if necessary. And as a result, they both started college at a very early age. My daughter started college when she was 13. My son started when he was 15 years old and uh, university. Uh, it's, I know it's different words. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Um, yeah. And they've done, they've always done very well. And more importantly yeah. than that, they're happy. And being able to learn from what it looks like to see a, a truly brilliant person work through something without the constraints that I had is really inspirational. Mm -hmm. But as far as as far as uh, people out there in the world, we've mentioned Joseph Campbell a few times. I, I'm a, mm -hmm. a huge fan of his. I'm also a fan of a, a person named Rob Bell. Rob Bell is a wonderful writer. Um, oh, he, he's a... Uh, he, He's a uh, used to be the minister of a mega church, you know, one of those with thousands of tens of thousands of people, right. and he walked away from it. Right. And I love his style. He wrote a book called Love Wins, which is basically the idea is we need to stop hating each other. And it's it was people were so angry with him <laughs> for such a wonderful thing, but he's wonderful. Uh, there's a woman named Rachel Held Evans. And she is an incredible writer as well. I absolutely adore everything that she's written. Um, but just people like that who are who are bring, trying to bring faith to bear, doesn't have to be religious faith, any kind of belief in something bigger, that kind of faith to bear on real life. That's what I'm trying to do too. So it's wonderful to see people like that doing things like that. Mm. It's always nice to get some references. I've not heard of either Rachel or Rob. So it's always nice to hear of somebody new that I can go and look up and read some of their stuff as well. So thank you for that. Um, what do you see as your purpose? Do you have a purpose? 
Well, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get people, as, as we've talked about, I'm trying to get people to find a different standard uh, for their lives. I'm trying to get people to learn how to listen to their hearts. And as I've said a few times now, I don't need them to agree with me religiously. I think that that's quite boring, really. I, I, I'm more interested in people agreeing with their own hearts mm. and just being open to the idea of, you know how you feel when you're in love? You're allowed to feel that way all the time. And in fact, doing so makes the world a better place. Mm. That is what I'm trying to do. I really think that that can be revolutionary. I really think that some of the worst things that we've seen in the history of humanity wouldn't happen if people just simply decided to live by their own standard instead of by what they can get, a, get away with, you know, yeah. that's a profound difference. And mm -hmm. so it's that, you know, um, what I talk about is, is there's a, you can live in a have to sort of frame of mind. I have to pay the bills. I have to do the dishes. You can live in a want to frame of mind, which is kind of where self-help will get you. But want to isn't everything either because that's just ego gratification. But the next level out from that is called to where you do the things you do because you must do them because your heart needs it to happen. And the more of those called to things you can do, the happier you'll be, the better the world is. And that's what I'm trying to get people to learn how to find. Yeah. I, I like that saying that you're called to do something really changes the whole kind of emphasis of it. Mm. It's, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very guilty of saying, Oh, I must do this today. And I've got that to do today. But, yeah. Yeah. But saying that you're called to do it. Um, yeah. It puts a completely different spin on it. I really like that. I know what I wanted to ask you. I believe you love coffee shops. I do. <laughs> I love coffee shops. It's one of my favorite things. And I must admit, it's one of the things that I've really missed. Um, mm. Because even though we can go into coffee shops now, because there's still so many restrictions and um, lots of things that you've got to be careful about, it's not got the same kind of vibe about it. So I'm not called to go in coffee shops as much at the minute. No, I, I, right now I'm reduced to, you know, I have an app on my phone where I order the coffee and I run in with my mask on and they hand it to me and I run back out more or less. I love the idea that it is one of the few places in our culture that is a, a safe place to just sit and yeah. think. You know, it, it can be a piazza. It can be a place where people are sharing ideas and talking. And, you know, I think that a lot of the people in the average coffee shop are pretending to write so that someone will be interested in them romantically or they're making some kind of business deal. Okay, fine. But if even one table in that coffee shop is someone just talking and thinking about something that's important on a different level, that's beautiful. And there's not a lot of places in our culture that are, that are made for that. In the in an average restaurant, you, they'd kick you out for loitering, you know, after a certain amount of time. You, you yeah. can sit in the coffee shop all day and think and maybe work on your laptop or write in your journal and do something that no one's ever done before. There's mm -hmm. not a lot of places where you can do something that nobody's ever done before. And the fact that it's the price of a cup of coffee is pretty wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. Um, you know, I my favorite thing is to have my coffee, my notebook, one of my pens, and I'm a fountain pen user. I think I've Me seen too. fountain pen. Um, yeah, well, um, this is yeah, this is one that my husband made that for me. Oh, wonderful. Um, 
he's a, a wood turner so yeah I have a number of fountain pens that he's made for me but yeah sitting there just writing and just having that space it's almost like um being in a little bubble when you go in a coffee shop and you've got that time and you've not got to be anywhere else and um yeah it's it's really nice that someone else gets that because sometimes I'm quite happy on my own I'll just go to a coffee shop and I'm quite happy just to sit there and write but yeah sometimes people don't kind of get that mm -hmm. <laughs> no I, I really do understand that it's 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 funny it's a place where you can be alone in the context of people but yeah. it's also a place for sharing. It's funny that, that a coffee shop can do that. And again, not too many places that, where that can happen. Here in Florida, a few years ago, uh, we had a hurricane come through and we were without electricity here in our home. But uh, there's a coffee shop a few streets over and they had power and they put out a thing on social media and we all could see it on our phone. So we have power. Come bring your uh, your uh, power strips and and uh, and use our electricity. And of course, they made a lot of money because everybody bought coffee. But it was wonderful to go there and sit and there were so many people. Yeah. And because we had all been through this incredible storm, nobody was talking about a business deal and nobody was trying to date anybody. It was just, wow, look what we went through. And isn't that amazing? And what are you going to do now? And what are you working on? And do you need help? Because yeah. some people did. And it was really beautiful that once again, cup of coffee and the important parts of culture can come through. Yeah. It's amazing, really. I suppose it's what we call the blitz spirit. Mm. You know, that's sort of what happened in the war. People would get together and um, pitch in and help each other. Um, yeah, it's, it's there's something pretty amazing about that. Yes. Um, have you got, are you going to be writing another book? Um, have you got any plans for what you're going to do over the next year? I do. Uh, I am going to start. I've been putting notes together uh, and I'm going to to make those into, uh, you know, I'm going to start putting those into chapters before too long. I'm, I want to get to the place where I'm really finished sort of promoting this book and I'm going to do some, once I'm able to, I'm going to go on the road and do some speaking engagements around Meaning Fulfilled and things like that. But as I'm doing that, I'm going to start to pull the book together. And around the first of the year, I'm going to start really sitting down and writing again um that kind of a thing but yeah i'm working on another book because I, I as i said earlier i don't know that i'm a great writer but i do love doing it and i think you yeah. have to do the things you love doing yeah i love writing mm. well i shall definitely look out for that is there anything else you'd just like to share that we've not covered is there anything else that i've not asked you that you would like to mention <laughs> um i think that uh that I'm just so grateful to be here. And what I would love for people listening to, to know is find things that you're grateful to be at. Once again, doesn't matter what it is. And we talked about being called. Think about the things you do all day. How many of them can you say with a straight face, I'm called to do that? For a lot of people, it's a short list. And it's okay, but maybe add some things to that list that you can in all honesty, say, I'm called to do this. I'm called to love my children. I'm called to whatever that happens to be for you. The more mm -hmm. of those things on that list, the happier you'll be. And the world that we make is going to be better for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, good few sentences to close with. Thank you. 
Thank you. It's, I, I've loved our conversation. It's I, it's just amazing talking to people that I've not met before and um, having these fantastic conversations. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this with me. It's It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for me as well. I've really, really loved this conversation. Thank you.